As you take your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel, and I want to begin with a few questions. Would you like to have a second chance today? Maybe there was a test that you took this week in school, kids, and you realized, I should have studied more. Perhaps there was a conversation, friends, that you had with a coworker, and you wish you could go back and say things differently? Are there situations in your life, either at home or or work or school or even here at church, where you've simply made the wrong decision? And and maybe you you haven't just screwed up, you've actually sinned in what you've done. Perhaps you this morning and you recognize that you've failed in your marriage or at a friendship or you open your mouth and you spoke things that you shouldn't have and you're humiliated and and you feel deep down in your soul that the circumstances of your life that there's no possible retrieval. There's no way out. The the door seems locked and, and you see no hope. You see no way forward. Have you felt that way before in your relationship with God? And I wonder if there's some that are seated here this morning and and visitors even that have joined us for the singing and the reading of scripture and the prayer and the offering and at the same time you feel that you've sinned before God, before the one you just sang to. And you know deep in your soul you've been ignoring him. Not just for a week but for months, perhaps decades And you've abused your relationship with him and mistreated his grace again and again. You know, know, I know on Sundays, we come to church and we work hard to not look desperate and broken. To not look like what we feel like inside sometimes. And we put on an expression, we, we put on our Sunday best, and we try to make it through the day try to look encouraged, try to look happy. But deep in our souls, we know it's not right. Friends, if that's you, you're welcome here. More than any other place on earth, the best place for you to be right now is in this gathering with God's people. And it's better for you to lose the facade than to lose your soul. Friends, it's better to be honest with God this morning than to continue in the charade that he knows all about. To unburden your soul. I believe in the providence of God and it's the providence of God that you're here this morning to sing with God's people and to sit under his word. And he's given me a text in the Bible as we preach through 2 Samuel that I think will be helpful to your soul. Although it's a difficult text to read, it's most definitely a difficult text to preach, but God has something for us. We come to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We come to the story of David's greatest failure. And we will also read in chapter 12 of David's greatest restoration. We will see both. Failure and restoration. Sin and grace. So here's the main idea. Real short. Our wickedness cannot overwhelm God's grace. And there's two points for the chapters. I'm really creative when it comes to this. Point one, the wicked scheming of sin. Point two, the godly plan of grace. Listen to James chapter one. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. 
2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath. But David remained at Jerusalem. The way in which the narrator is writing this for us is he wants us to understand something, that this is very strange. He wants you to pause and think, what is going on here? When the kings go out to battle, this king stays home. And he's setting up the story for us to understand the significance. Why is David staying home? Why hasn't he, like other kings, gone to the battle? What we're reading in chapter 11, it seems to be the battle that we just read last week in chapter 10. And so as we quickly ended the sermon and went through chapter 10, we get another view. We, we saw the battle in chapter 10 of this view, and now in chapter 11, we're going to get the other side. You realize that when things happen here, there's other things happening over there. I think we forget that sometimes, at least maybe I do. But what's happening in Edgewood and Puyallup area, there's something different on the other side of the world. And this is an opportunity that the narrator is turning it to say, this was the battle, and hear what was happening back at home. Verse 2, it happened. Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. David gets up from his couch, uh, possibly taking a nap, a siesta after dinner, and he goes for a walk. And his glance becomes a gaze. And in that moment, David invites temptation to come and to stay for a while. James says each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. The word for tempt in that verse in James means to entangle a person. David pauses long enough on the roof to be entangled now. Friends, it's the nature of sin to be intoxicating. Sin seeks to make you drunk, to lose your judgments. Sin does not look to build you up. It is not there to encourage you. And James says when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Sin is always in the small print. But the Bible is the magnifying glass that helps you read that small print. In verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman, and, the, and one said, is, it not, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the, wa- the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and she returned to her house, and the woman conceived And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. The action here is quick. I mean, the verbs rush past as David rushed to fulfill his lust. He sent, he took, he laid with her. The deed was simply self-indulgence. There is no adornment in the language, no flowery language, just the facts. There's nothing but action, no conversation. It's alarming, actually. There's no hint of caring, no affection, no description of love. We don't get that. We just see wicked lust. David never calls her by name. The narrator is clear. David takes the daughter of Elam the wife of Uriah. And we need to understand how the narrator said in the story, he says that she was purifying herself. Why is he sharing that? It's because she just completed her monthly menstrual period, so the baby that she's going to be pregnant with couldn't be her husband's. There's a reason why the narrator's telling us. And now I need to warn you, friends, and maybe you've read this before, but if you begin to say, I could never do this, then you've already taken steps that are leading to your fall. We should never be surprised at what we're capable of as humans. And we 
all of us are very capable of what David does here. Don't believe the lie that somehow you're different. I also want to be clear this morning that the sin we're discussing here of what the narrator tells us, this is the sin of David. That's what we learn in this text. As far as we can read, there's no mention that Bathsheba did anything wrong in the text. David, the royal king, saw and asked and sent for her. What could she do in that culture except submit to the king? And what we learn is those that serve in any authority position have authority simply because of their position, their title. We are not told that this is rape, but simply I think all signs point to that being the case. What we learn from the simple reading is David is the predator, Bathsheba is the prey. And some, I read it, I read the commentaries, some want to talk about modesty about this issue. And frankly, they're wrong. Foolish, in fact. There's other passages that talk about modesty, but not here, not now. I want to speak directly, just briefly, to women and, and girls. If if you have been abused, and the man blames it on you, or your beauty, or something you did or said, you need to hear me that you did nothing wrong. When shame begins to fill your heart and mind. You need to hear me that that was sin done to you. Not because of you. We are not told that Bathsheba invited this. What we're told is David was the predator and Bathsheba was the prey. We also need to be clear that David's sin was not that he saw Bathsheba. It wasn't a sin to go for a walk. No, his sin was that he kept looking and then he took her to do with what he wanted. So for you, your sin isn't owning a smartphone. It isn't having Instagram or TikTok or Facebook on your phone. That's not a sin. But when you look at things you shouldn't, when you begin the path of porn, that is a sin. It's not sinful to have a TV or Netflix. But when you watch TV and movies that glamorize the things that we're talking about, friend, that is not wise. It's not sinful to have coworkers, but when you begin to look at your coworkers who are not your spouse and you begin to fantasize about what life would look like to live with them, that is a sin. Or maybe you're here and you're saying, I don't have any of these. The issues are not sexual at all, but for you, it's about cars or clothes or houses or vacations or the better life that captures your attention and draws you in and you refuse to look away. And you believe, if I just have this, that finally I will be happy. Finally I will, I will be fulfilled if I have that new car, if I have the updated house, if I have that vacation in a tropical location, then I will finally be satisfied. What are you tempted with? I mean, I could spend the next hour listing details, but I don't know you. You know you. 
And I think you need to ask that question to yourself. Where am I tempted? And then if you understand that, friends, you need to run away from that. As Joseph did in the Old Testament with Potiphar's wife, you run from those opportunities and realize that they will not satisfy your soul. They are only making you intoxicated, drunk, and you lose your sense of judgment. Being happy in God and his goodness means we put to death those things that seek to replace him in our life. To David, he didn't put it away. And Bathsheba was merely the woman rather than a real person. Moreover, there's no mention made of the agony of uncertainty that she suffered in the midst of what happened and then now with a child. No mention of what she was experiencing with her husband away at war, only that she's now pregnant. And she tells the king, and now it's his turn to be dismayed. David now has to deal with the consequences of his actions. According to Jewish law, David was to be put to death, king or not, since he had a sexual relationship with another man's wife. Deuteronomy 22 talks about that. And as long as no one knew what they had done because they weren't caught by anyone, they were safe, but now Bathsheba's pregnant. The secret can't be hidden. Everyone will soon know. What will David do? Verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and therefore followed And there followed him a a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to him, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house and to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in the presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. What we are reading here is the wicked scheming of sin. These remaining verses in the chapter move so quickly now. It seems like David never paused for a moment to consider his actions, to consider repentance. Instead, he, he runs further to try to cover it up, to remove the guilt that sits on his soul. David had hoped that Uriah would prove to be like himself. Instead, he proved to be a man of integrity. Her, his first loyalty was to the king's interest rather than his own pleasure. Uriah had more wisdom drunk than David had sober. And David's caught again. His first two plans don't work. Uriah will not do what he wants. So what will he do now? James says, sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Chapter 11, verse 14, in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there was valiant men and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell And Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. Skip down to 22. 
So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David sent to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Uriah carries his own death sentence. What another level of cruelty we see from King David. Uriah's faithfulness to the kingdom, to the king, required of of him to take and deliver this letter. And in this letter, details how he was to die. If only Uriah had actually done what David had asked. If only he had gone and slept with his wife. If only he had done that, then this all would have been done, right? I'm afraid there's some that believe that would have been the answer. As far as the story goes, it seems now that David has finally made it out of this ordeal. He has preserved his life. He can take a deep breath now. He's succeeded. He won't die. He's safe. The man after God's own heart takes the sword after God's own people to save himself. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Again, I thought this week of the trauma in which Bathsheba is experiencing. She was taken, she was forced, she's pregnant, and now her husband is dead. And now she's brought into the royal palace and a new husband and a, a new son. Where would she go for hope? Would she wonder, are the wicked always going to win? Maybe you think that. Friends, just because evil runs on a successful path does not mean that God is not watching and that God will not act. God is silent in this chapter, but he isn't sightless. The narrator tells us so in the very last verse. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The story is not done. We find out that at least nine months passed before chapter 12. Nine months passed with David believing that he's safe. That he's outmaneuvered this situation that he's brought on. I, I wonder if, the, if the, that time cements in David that it's okay now. The pressure that he felt in his chest is now relieved. No one's going to know. I'm safe. You know, the unvarnished truth of this chapter is that the kingdom is not safe in the hands of mere men, even King David. The kingdom will only be safe in the hands of Jesus Christ, who will rule with complete justice and righteousness. So that's point number one. Second, and it it gets harder before it gets better. Second, the godly plan of grace. Friends, what if God didn't pursue sinners? Think about that. Maybe you believe that right now. 
What if God allowed us to stay in our sin? Do you really want a God like that? Do you want a a graceless God who ignores sin and rejects sinners? Is that the type of God you want? We, We travel from the land of sin and we go to the land of judgment and they will land on the soil of amazing grace. And the opening words that we read in chapter 12 show it this. Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Do you have your Bible open? Do you have a pen in hand? Write, this is the grace of God. The Lord sent Nathan to David. This is God's grace. He will not be a God that allows sin to just sit there. He will pursue his people. Nathan, he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and one the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And when he brought it up and grew it with him and with his children, it it used to eat of the morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives... The man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Chapter 12 begins with Nathan going to David again with the word from God. Just like in chapter 7, instead now it's a story, and it's a fascinating story, and the details that David would have been very familiar with two characters, a rich man and a poor man. And in that culture, when a guest would come, the, the guest would need to be cared for. There were no motels and hotels for people to stay in. There were no McDonald's that they could get food after a long journey. They were to be cared for by others. God told them that. And the rich man knows that. The rich man, in some ways, is going to obey that, but he doesn't take from his own. No, he loathes killing his own sheep. No, he goes and takes his neighbor's sheep, probably why he's out working to supply for his family. And he cooks it, and they eat together. And there's an attitude beneath this act of, of heartlessness and cruelty. And, and Nathan tells this story beautifully. And he brings David in, and he, and he hooks him. And, and David is seen here to rid of his own guilty conscience by passing judgment on the rich man. But the punchline is about to drop. David, not knowing who this man was, and even rightly so, wants to execute justice as the king. He's not certain if this is a parable or something that happened that he needs to deal with. And he's ready. He's ready to deal with it. And in verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. David was the rich man. Nathan, instead of sitting David down and calling him what he was, a filthy womanizer and cruel murderer, Nathan tells him a story. He he brings David along so that his own conscience will judge himself. And, And Nathan's strategy is nothing short of brilliant and hard. But the end goal, friends, is not to keep David broken in his sin. This was all in the godly plan of grace from God. It is a technique of godly planning that moves beyond our resistance to switch the floodlights out into our soul that we can see our sin. 
Nathan doesn't accuse, he doesn't lecture David, he simply tells him a story that would, he would understand, that he would have some vested interest in. Re- remember, what was David before he was a king? He was a shepherd. He knew sheep. He understood the responsibility, and he understood this, and it draws him in. Commentator Alexander White was right. He says, Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David knew that Nathan had a sword. Our conscience is the eternal warning system that God has gifted us to help us to not sin. But your conscience can be hardened with continual sin and no repentance. And worse, Paul talks about our conscience being seared in 1 Timothy 4. He says, Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, though the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. This means in this verse that, that the conscience can be so desensitized and rendered ineffective by a constant rebellion against the gospel. This doesn't mean that a Christian can lose their salvation. This means that they were never a Christian to begin with. It's proven by their life. Christians respond to the gospel, not just for the beginning of their salvation, but with repentance when they sin. Non-Christians don't respond to the gospel. This chapter is all about the godly planning of grace to draw David back to to himself, to God. But before grace can be given, David's sin must be fully exposed. And so Nathan continues, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little... I would add to you as much more. And in this, the Lord begins to itemize the list of his grace towards David and all that he's given him. I anointed you and I delivered you and I gave to you and I would add to you. And the Lord is in this moment stressing the foolishness of David's sin. He's saying, David, you were not deprived in your rise as king. I had loaded you up with benefits, with protection, with goodness. And so it's no wonder that he erupts in verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Simply put, David had despised God's word. Sin at its root is despising the Lord and his word. To despise means to treat with contempt. And through his adultery and murder, David had shown his contempt for the Lord. He showed it with his his thoughts and his actions that the Lord truly didn't matter to him. And so we're clear this morning to despise God's word is to despise the one who has given us his word. And to stomp on his word with our lives is to actually stomp on the one who gave it to us. In these verses, it shows us clearly that of what David's sin was. He not only committed serious sins against other humans, but he destroyed a person. Friends, we need to understand that our sin hurts others. You may think, we may think, that our sin done in private just with ourself has no ramifications to others, but we're wrong. If our mind goes to a defense when we're confronted with our sin and you're thinking that it's not completely true, that there's more of the story, it's not that bad, friends, that's a bad sign. But if your mind goes to grief and to mourning of your sin when it's brought to your attention, friends, that's a good sign. Perhaps that's where you find yourself this morning. 
Do you realize that you have sinned and now your conscience condemns you as you sit here? You know that you've sinned and, and, you, and yet there's no consequence that's happened yet. And so you begin to wonder, was that truly a sin? Did I really break God's law in that way? Friends, don't begin to believe those lies. Don't begin to be deceived. Just because the consequences haven't come doesn't mean they're not coming. God will deal with sin. And yet God has given you a way out. Friends, God is not standing with his arms folded and his feet tapping, irritated at you. Maybe you thought that. Maybe you heard that as a kid. It's not true. God is patient. He is patient to you by bringing you here this morning. And he longs for you to go to him. It may seem harsh in which God is dealing with David through Nathan, but friends, this is all grace to show David himself for the point of repentance. So friend, if you're here this morning, you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you on the cross. This morning and through the study, God is calling you to himself. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, for all of them. And he rose from the dead as proof that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. And so the right response is to repent of our sin, of trusting ourselves and our good works, and it's to to trust in Christ alone. And I want to encourage you, if you have more questions, that you would come find me or the other leaders this morning. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you. But Christian friends, when we are saved, we don't stop sinning. Actually, when we're saved, we become more sensitive to sin. It it bothers us more. And when we're brought to this point and our sin's been brought before us, the right response is to repent of it. And we're going to see that response by David. Before even he gets there, though, God has brought the charge and now he's going to discuss the consequences. You need to understand that there's always consequences for actions, for sins, for anything in this world. There's always a consequence. Right? We, I think we understand that, right? If I drive my car 15 miles per hour into a wall, there's a consequence, right? It no, it's not, nothing happens. There's always consequences, in our life, for all of us. And there will be consequences for what David does here. Verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it in secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. What the law tells us is that David deserved death. And what we read is that David received grace. And yet the consequences are there. Commentator Richard Phillips says, David's own sons would die before he would. His son with Bathsheba, Amen, Absalom, Adoja, the three would be killed by his own household. And David would know, sadly, that God's hand was on the sword that spilled the blood of his own children. And here is that fourfold retribution that David himself demanded of the rich man. How will David respond? As all of this piles up on him and he becomes fully aware of what he's done How will he respond? Look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I think you need to underline that too in your Bible. This 
is what it looks like for a man after God's own heart. When you're caught in sin, friends, and you know it's true, and the condemnation is strong, the guilt rises up, your flesh will rise up as well to try to excuse it. Your flesh does not want to admit it. Satan does not want you to confess your sin. But you need to put your flesh to death. And you need to be a man and woman after God's own heart and you need to say, I have sinned. And what does God do? The rest of the verse, Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Just for a moment, do you see the difference between King Saul and King David? If you go back and read 1 Samuel 15, I keep saying this. Have you guys read 1 Samuel yet? You need to go back and read the book. If you read 1 Samuel 15, you see Saul's response. When Samuel comes to Saul because he didn't do what God had said, Saul's response is all sorts of excuses. But, 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 but this happened. But they wanted this. But they thought this. That is not repentance. And Saul suffers serious consequences for this. And what do we see from David? Even more grievous sin, we see David saying, I have sinned. He repents. Men, do you want to be a good husband, a good father in your home? You need to repent more often. In fact, you need to be the chief repenter so that your wife sees it and your kids learn how to do it. And God responds with grace. The Lord has put away your sin. David acknowledges sin He confesses, he repents, and the Lord puts it away. The Lord forgives the guilt of his sin. And yet he will allow the consequences of his sin to come. He cleanses sin's defilement, and yet discipline will come. The Lord's forgiveness was both incredible and costly. The child would die. Verse 15, and Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him and to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But David saw that his servants were whispering together. David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child is dead, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him and he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba And went and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. You need to understand, I don't know if you've read this or heard this, but the child was not an atoning sacrifice for David's sin. 
Don't read into that. His death is an illustration of sin's nature and God's judgment upon sin. His son has died, and then we will learn what David knew of his Lord. And we learn of his relentless intercession. David truly knew of his grace, and so he's stirred to pray. David knows his God. He knows that God had shown grace before, and so he goes before the Lord. He knows that this is what the Lord loves to do. And so that's why he goes, and that's why he prays and fasted. But what do we make of verse 23? Maybe that's where you're caught up for a moment. Did David have some special revelation about his son? Is he saying the infants automatically go to heaven when they die? This is a moment where I want to be very careful not to make the Bible say what I want it to say. And you need to recognize this is not the point of the message. This is not the point of the passage. But I need to speak to it for a moment. I've learned over the years in ministry and from other godly pastors that we should, as Bible readers, always ask, what is clear in Scripture? And then reason from there to what is less clear. The first truth is clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament that we have all died in Adam, that everyone is guilty of Adam's sin, that we deserve God's judgment. The second truth is that we're responsible for our own sin. And increased knowledge brings increased responsibility. But the third is that we know from the Bible that God is not only just, but he wants to be known as being just and good. So when you put all three of those together, we then understand more clearly what God's word teaches us. And when things are not clear, we need to go to those things that are most clear about God. And we go to the character of God, of who he is. And when dark times come into your life and you don't know what to think and you don't know what to do, or how to move forward. I want you to think of what Abraham said to the Lord when he wanted to judge Sodom. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He will. Friend, the judge of all the earth, our Lord God will do what is right. And we can take that to the bank. Whether we have a clear understanding or not from God's word, we can take and know and understand who our God is and what our Bible says about him. Our view of things does not affect what God does. If you want to know what our Lord will do, you must understand who God is And you must know that he will always do the right thing. There is no question. Ultimately, here I think in this passage, David is teaching his servants. That's the point. There's something that will help you to understand about his God. And I, I hope it will help us when troubling things come into our lives. See, Christian, someday you will stand before God and you will see that God is good. And you will see that everything he did was good. You may not see it all now, but you will see it then. He is a God who gives mercy. He is a God who rescues sinners who don't deserve it. That's what we see in chapter 12. Right? There's no human explanation why God does what he does with David here. Well, I need to conclude. Would you like to have a second chance today? Are there areas in your life where sin needs to be brought into the light? I think Tim Keller said this, maybe someone else said it before him, but 
to the effect we're definitely more sinful than we ever dared to believe, but at the same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This passage here is not given to excuse the guilt of your sin, but chapter 12 is there to help you get beyond the despair of your sin and to see God's grace for you. And so I would encourage you to go to God to confess your sins and to trust in him alone. One last thing as an encouragement, Robert, Robert Murray McChain, McChaney, I'm not sure how you say his name. Zach will correct me because I think he knows. He would say that of his role of a pastor, the thing he needed most, he said, my people's greatest need for me is my personal holiness. And I think that's true. If you're wanting to think of something to pray for your pastors and elders, pray that we are holy. But then I think that could be applied and should be applied to you. Husbands, fathers, the thing that your family needs most is your holiness. And so pray to that end. Wives, mothers, the thing that your family needs most is your holiness. Seeking after God, following him. And by God's grace, he placed you here right now in the midst of other people that are also trying to walk and follow Jesus Christ. So you don't have to do it by yourself. The Christian life is not meant to live solo. So seek out someone to help, to be an encouragement, that the two of you can pray for one another, encourage one another as you follow the Lord. I pray that this, these two chapters this morning would, would help us, would encourage us. And that God would use these words to bring understanding of our sin, recognition of it, and that we would turn from it and follow him.